Well, let's pray before we get started here today. Father, I thank you for, uh, just for this church body and for all uh, they do and all of the various ministries that they support. Lord, we thank you for uh, hearts that are willing to serve others and not only themselves. Lord, I pray that this word now will, uh, will be your word, that it will enlighten and enrich, that it would bring conviction but not condemnation. Let your Holy Spirit work within each of us and help us to understand more what is your perfect way. Give you thanks and praise, Lord, and ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> okay, that was weird. I looked up. It's like Joan had a baby. I thought, <laughs> man, I missed that. <laughs> now, I, now I can actually see whose baby it is. So I'm <laughs> It just was a little startling. When I <clears throat> well, oh my gosh. It's about a little... Um, it, slide advancer up there. Oh, great. I uh, better not walk in front of those speakers again. No, we're good. Wait, yeah, you can leave it there. Well, when I was a kid, there were uh, predominantly two types of comic books that were available. You had Marvel comics and you had DC comics, okay? Now, DC comics featured these characters. So you had Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman, um, the Green Lantern, Flash, Aquaman, and probably some others that have joined the uh, camp since I was reading comic books a while back. So that was DC. On the other hand, you had Marvel. And Marvel's stable of characters was Spider-Man and Captain America, Wonder Woman, not Wonder Woman, the Fantastic Four, Daredevil, Iron Man, all of those guys. And um, I eagerly read both. I mean, I, but I was always partial to Marvel. And I think the reason was that they, the, the, the dialogue of the characters was always written with a little bit of attitude. You know, they were a little bit smart-alecky. Um, and to, as a juvenile, that was appealing to me, right? But there's one particular character that is relevant to today's sermon on the deadly sin of anger. <laughs> and that is this unfriendly looking green fellow whose name is the Hulk. Okay, so um, throughout all of his comic book appearances and then in the last couple of, uh, well, I guess in the last 10 years, numerous movie appearances as well, uh, he's always portrayed as this large green humanoid that has uh, amazing strength, superhuman strength, pretty much invulnerable, and those attributes seem to increase the angrier he becomes. And so if you don't know the story, Hulk is the alter ego of a scientist named Dr. Bruce Banner. And... Uh, He's this very withdrawn, emotionally reserved physicist. And um, because of an accident with some radiation, he develops into uh, the Hulk whenever he gets angry. Now, I was think as I was preparing this, I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if passive-aggressive people turned green 
when they got angry. You know, because it would make dealing with them so much easier. You could imagine a conversation would go something like this. Look, I know you're upset. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Go look in the mirror. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> Just a thought. But anyway, if you're old enough to remember the uh, TV show about the Hulk that ran in the late 70s and early 80s, it was called The Incredible Hulk. And it starred Bill Bixby as Dr. Banner and uh, bodybuilder Lou Ferrigno was the Hulk. And one of the best known quotes from the show that Dr. Banner would say periodically when uh, uh, he was starting to get emotional, he would say, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And I think that's a true statement even if you don't turn into the Hulk. We're never at our best when we are angry. Uh, and so, the Bible has, has quite a lot to say about the subject of anger. <clears throat> but the interesting thing is it's not all negative. Okay, we call this a deadly sin, but there is a tiny, tiny bit of, uh, of righteousness within this, uh, I guess, the, the actual subject of anger. And so uh, one example of this would be Matthew 18.34, when the king gets angry with the unforgiving servant. If you're not familiar with the story, um, this man has an, uh, an amazingly large debt, right, that he owes to the king. And I've heard various, you know, it's in, in, in scripture, you, it's translated as, you know, this much. And then I've heard people say that if you took that into today's dollars, it could be billions or whatever. But suffice it to say, it was a debt larger than he would probably ever be able to repay. And so he goes to the king and he throws himself on the mercy of the king and the king forgives his debt. And so then he leaves and as he's leaving, he immediately encounters a man who owes him money and a substantially lesser amount, okay? Well, he responds in anger, um, you know, decides he's gonna have the man thrown into prison. And when the king finds out about this, the king is very angry, obviously, and, uh, and has the man imprisoned at the, because and the whole point of the story was that he was not willing to offer forgiveness to someone else in the same measure that it was offered to him. But the point is, the king got angry, right? And that was kind of a righteous anger, all right? So that's obviously not what we're talking about when we talk about this whole deadly sin phenomenon and, and how anger is one of those. But the Bible really has an awful lot to say about anger, and so I want to kind of jump into that right now. And I think the first point in all of this is that a moment of, a moment of anger can cause a lifetime of regret. A moment of anger can cause a lifetime of regret. And, and for this I want to read from uh, Numbers. It's chapter 20, verses one through 12. We'll have the, the scripture up here on the screen, but if you wanna follow along in a different translation, you, you can. So Numbers 21 through 12. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. 
Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? There is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Now, according to Numbers 12.3, which is a couple of chapters before this, it says that Moses was the most humble man of his time. That's pretty impressive to be called the most humble man of his time. But his anger kept him from entering the promised land. See, instead of, what did God tell him to do? God said, speak to the rock. What did Moses do? He smacked the rock with a staff. Now, <clears throat> most of us can probably appreciate the way Moses was feeling at this point. You know, he led this group, gotten them through all kinds of things by following the Lord's commands, <clears throat> doing all sorts of miraculous things. And what do they do? They come to him, and are they grateful? No, they're whining. And maybe some legitimately, we don't know, but they wanted water and so on and so forth. And essentially they were blaming Moses and Aaron for this. Okay, so that sort of helps you understand. So God tells them what to do. Moses, though, how, is, is ticked off. <laughs> He's not happy about this. And I could almost, I mean, here, in my mind, this is the way the scene plays out. It's not twice. He's got that staff, and he's like, I'll get you water if you, you know, and it's one after another. Because he's just, he's just so fed up with this. And so he's striking the rock, and, you know, it actually appears that Moses is more upset about this than God is. Ooh, there's an interesting thought. God really wasn't all that upset about this, was he? It was Moses that got his tunic in a bind. So he's, you know, he's thundering at these people, listen, you rebels. All right, we'll bring you water out of this rock, but I'm going to just hit it a few times first. Now, water did flow from the rock, 
and the people drank, but the damage was done. The Lord pronounced a sentence on Moses and told him that he would not enter the promised land. I found this quote that I thought was sort of interesting. It's by a, a gentleman named Ambrose Bierce. Probably not known to, uh, to many, if any of you, but he was a journalist and satirist um, in, in the late 1800s. And he said this, Speak when you are angry, and you will make the best speech you will ever regret. And I thought, boy, isn't that true. So let me ask you a question now. What has a momentary lapse into anger cost you? Oh, how pleasant. I didn't know we had chimes. What has a momentary lapse into anger cost you? A relationship with a best friend? Estranged family members? Maybe a job with great potential? See, anger at that level is sort of like a warning sign that shows us that we are no longer in, in belief or have the faith that God is truly sovereign or good. If you trust that God is sovereign and God is good, then you can resist being angry even if life starts to become unfair. And I think the story of Joseph is a great example of this. You know, where Joseph is, goes out to meet his, his brothers and they uh, uh, feel like he's kind of gotten a little bit too much special treatment and so they decide to pretend that he died and throw him in a well, right? And then he gets sold into slavery, goes to Egypt, has some issues with uh, Potiphar's wife, who then causes him to get thrown into prison. And eventually he comes out of prison and, and comes before the king and is raised to uh, a very prominent position within the kingdom. But we never see him getting angry through this process. And it's kind of interesting because you would, by our standards, he has every right to be angry, right? I mean, your own brothers sell you into slavery? A woman, you know, falsely accuses you of, uh, of being with her? You get thrown into prison as a result of that? I mean, there's a lot of injustice going on here. And yet, he never really gets angry because he has that faith in God and God ultimately takes care of it. Now, it probably doesn't happen in the timing that Joseph would like, but that's another issue, right? So Joseph was able to ultimately forgive his brothers because he had this belief in God's sovereignty and in God's goodness. Secondly, an attitude of anger opens the gateway for more sin. And the scripture there is, is, uh, is on the same slide. It's from Proverbs, and it says, A man of wrath stirs up strife, and when given to anger, causes much transgression. <clears throat> and I think it's safe to say that anyone who could be described as angry or hot-tempered 
has a spiritual problem that goes a lot deeper than, than the surface. It's a heart becomes a heart issue really at that point. It's not just a temporary, you know, lapse into anger, but it's more of a an internal thing that pops up all the time. And the thing is, it doesn't just stir up trouble amongst people. It also produces a lot of other sin. I mean, it spoils your relationship with God in addition to spoiling your relationship with other people. You more or less lose control of yourself when you get that angry. And the sin that can spring forth you know, from this would be you could curse or insult others, misusing God's name, being rude, lacking kindness, being cruel or oppressive, and being proud. So a second question for us all to really think about today is, is anger more than just a temporary emotion or feeling for you? You know, if, if you're driving to work and somebody cuts you off in traffic, does the anger that springs forth from you then turn out to ruin your whole day? You know, are you, does it, is it just a momentary thing or does it actually stay with you throughout the whole day? Because if it does, then that's speaking to you that there's something deeper going on here than just a little irritation. <clears throat> or does anger that you may have um, incurred or come forth because of a situation at work come home with you and then affect <clears throat> all the relationships you have at home. So if, as you ponder this and you think back, if situations like this are kind of a regular occurrence for you, then you might be dealing with a spirit of anger. And so I would encourage you to ask the Lord to show you the root of that. You know, get, get, some, get together, and, or not get together, get alone, and get together with the Lord in some quiet time and really ask him to show you, okay, what, Lord, what is this? Why do I constantly have this anger that well, is welling up in me? So my encouragement here is don't let anger define who you are. See, Scripture is talking about the man of wrath. That's a description of someone. Don't let that be the description of you man of wrath or woman of wrath. But deal with that if that is something that is uh, affecting you. I mean, you can come and talk to me. You could, you know, we'll pray about it, whatever it takes. But deal with it before it becomes uh, even more of an issue than it is now. The third idea here is that a lapse into anger uh, is, should be dealt with quickly. And Ephesians 4.26 tells us, do not let the sun go down on your anger. <laughs> I did find a funny quote. You know, how many of you remember Phyllis Diller? <clears throat> Most people do. Um, she was a comedian, rather caustic. And uh, there was a quote from her where she says, never go to bed angry. Stay up and fight. <laughs> So the point here is that you, know, you may not always be able to keep from getting angry, 
But you need to keep from letting that anger turn into sin when that happens. When you get angry, you need to deal with it, right? You know, when, when we allow ourselves to, you know, in our anger to become, excuse me, let me start that again. When we allow our anger to become sin is when we allow ourselves to keep that anger for more than a day. You know, by harboring that, it's giving the enemy a, a prime opportunity to take control over your attitudes, over your actions, over your relationships. It gives them a foothold to grow that anger into something that's even greater, including additional sin. And so I think the way to prevent that is to use the, um, the old saying of keeping short accounts, right? Dealing with anger before the day is out if at all possible, or as soon as possible the next day. Because there is an element of anger in us that is righteous. But when that gets corrupted and gets blown up into something that's even greater, then it becomes a sin in itself. And that's where Satan can come in and make that into something that is even, um, even worse. And that anger then begins to control the believer rather than the believer being able to control the anger. Sad thing is I'm now watching this play out in the lives of a couple of believers. And uh, their refusal to deal with their anger is leading them further and further away from Jesus to the point that it is practically consuming them. It's this kind of anger is the epitome of socially destructive and alienating sin. And it's all so characteristic of the old creation, that which we were, but that which we're not supposed to be anymore. And so if you get to a point where you find that there's anger in your lives, don't cultivate and nurture it like a plant. Pull it out like the weed that it is. Otherwise, it's going to spread and then destroy your entire garden or your lawn or whatever, you know, you're trying to grow. But it doesn't belong there. And sort of along the same lines as the, the fourth idea here is that you've got to put anger away. And Paul is t writing to the Colossians and he's telling them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. He's telling them that they've got to get rid of it. And in fact, if you read the rest of this, he's telling them they've got to, to put it off or take it off like their old tattered garments. Just like a worn out set of clothes. And what's he telling them they've got to, to get rid of? Well, anger and rage because they destroy human relationships. Malice is sort of a general term describing an evil force that wrecks fellowship. Slander can mean the insulting of, of another human being. And uh, elsewhere in scripture, it even talks about that going as far as being blaspheming God. And abusive language just needs to be stopped before it even comes out of their mouth. 
And the answer is, is really pretty clear to what Paul's driving at. He's expecting the Christian, as part of the renewal, to become in God's image, that they have to be able to see clearly and understand that there are some very deep and important and serious issues behind just this idea of casual talk. And as so often in Colossians, if you read through that book, and certainly contrary to what people today imagine, being a Christian doesn't mean to leave your brain behind in the quest for new experiences. It really means that you, you need to think even harder and use it even more Under, to understand and really bring it into agreement with what Jesus teaches. Thinking straight and knowing the truth are part of what it means to truly be a human being. And that's the sort of human being that the gospel is meant to create. And so Paul, throughout a lot of these letters, are encouraging these fairly young churches, in all cases, that they've got to be done with the old ways of life. See, once it, there was a time when behaving that way was understandable. They didn't really know any better. But now, they're precisely the kinds of sin that make harmonious relationships among fellow believers hard, if not impossible. These kinds of evils are at the heart of a pagan society. And it's these very things which destroy every dream of human brotherhood. I mean, it's, you see it everywhere now. I mean, it, to me, it almost seems like the, the entire idea of civil discourse has completely disappeared from our society. You know, we, we, we can't even agree to disagree anymore. That's like it's become an obsolete option. Because, you know, if you disagree with someone, then anger essentially has become the de facto response to that. All right, well, I, you're, you don't agree with me? Well, now I'm going to hate you. Really? That's the way you're going to deal with disagreement? To that, what Paul is saying is, stop, don't go there. You're better than that. Put your anger away and leave it there. In his best-selling book, The Telling Room, Michael Paternetti shares a true story that he heard when visiting his father's ancestral village in Sicily. Every day while he was in the village, he saw a very old woman walking with her cane, struggling, struggling up a steep road to get to the local cemetery. It was said that at her tortoise-like pace, the walk from her home to the cemetery took about six hours out of her day. And so he wondered what grief inspired her difficult daily walk. Was she driven by sorrow over a departed child or a deceased husband who had been the love of her life? No, the local people told him. 
she was driven by bitter hatred. Her arch enemy was buried in that cemetery. And so rain or shine, the old woman walked up the hill every day to her enemy's gravesite just to spit on it one more time. Every angry person feels righteous. And when we are angry, we concentrate on the object of it and forget everything else. It is now judgment day, and we are playing God. What we tend to forget is that only the righteous have a right to be angry. And so appropriately, this is called righteous indignation. And as I said at the beginning of this, there are rare cases when we are angry for the right reasons. When we hear that someone has made a racist remark or has lied to try and destroy someone else's reputation or someone who has committed some kind of a heinous crime. Thing is, none of us is truly righteous. We do wrong stuff too. And so given our own sins, we really are in no position to judge. And righteous anger implies a kind of judgment, at least of an action. God's not called us to stand high and above other people, but with them. We fail and we desire compassion and patience from other people. Many times our anger over situations is not due to the situation's actual morality, but actually because they conflict with our own desire and our own ideas of what should be good and bad. And in case you haven't noticed, our ideals are not always God's. A pretty good deal of self-examination is required if it comes to that. Why am I really angry? Is God angry about this? Remember Moses? God wasn't really all that upset about what they were saying. He just told Moses how to fix it. Moses was the one who was carrying the anger around. So if God's not angry about this, then do I claim to be more righteous than God? Ooh. See, this might be a helpful idea in dealing with anger, asking if God is angry about the same thing. There's a caution here, though. You'd better know God very well. Because if you don't, you're going to simply make God in your own image and then you'll have him bless everything that you do. So perhaps we could say that righteous anger is simply a matter of agreeing with God over serious matters. 
However, God doesn't really need our anger. So maybe something more productive would be called for. Some kind of action on behalf of good. So if we, if we look to the Gospels for an answer, we see that Jesus spent almost no time being angry. And in the, the very, very few cases that he was, it was very short-lived. And so if we find that we're getting angry often, then it's probably not righteous anger. And then, if we believe that we should be angry because we want to agree with God, then are we also compassionate for the same reason? Do we agree with his mercy? Do we genuinely try to follow the full gospel, or do we like to pick and choose? Are we prepared to humble ourselves for the sake of others as Jesus did? Do we remember God's patience and God's mercy in the way that he has dealt with us? I think the safest course of action is first to imitate God's mercy, God's compassion, God's humility, gentleness, and above all, his love. Because if all of that is what's in our hearts, then perhaps we may also have some righteous anger. But there probably won't be room and we probably won't miss it. Amen. Father, I thank you for uh, these, your people. Bless them as they go forth from this place. Lord, let your spirit go with them and just shine forth from them, no matter where they are or what they do, Lord. Just let your spirit come forth. Let them be a walking testimony to the grace and the love and the beauty of Jesus. And I pray for encounters this week, Lord, where they will have the opportunity to touch others as Jesus has touched us. So we give you thanks and praise, Lord, and we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you all. Have a great week, and I hope to see you again soon.